again, we welcome you. It is good to have you. It is encouragement to us that you're here, and we hope that we can be encouragement to you. What a wonderful week this past week was. Uh, to think about the financial stewardship seminar on Sunday and Monday, and then Wednesday evening wrapped up the four evenings uh, where Brad Harob helped us to be reminded of the fact that God and science and the scriptures all go hand in hand. And then this weekend, uh, our young people were reminded that God made them in a wonderful fashion for success. To each one that took part in this, we thank you for taking part in it. To each one that helped make these things a reality, we thank you for working and being a part of that. Be thinking about this Wednesday night. Invite someone. This is the last Wednesday night of our Summer Faith Series. Make sure you're here. Make sure you invite someone. And then be prayerful. Be looking forward to Sunday morning. It'll be the beginning of our fall focus for a quarter. For 13 Sundays, we're going to focus in our adult Bible classes and during the Sunday morning sermon time on the cross. I uh, appreciate so much the work that Andrew does to provide things and opportunities like this for us. Let's make sure that we focus on the tremendous truths of the cross and really intend on our lives being stronger and closer to God at the end of this next quarter. If we don't intend on that happening, there's really no use being here, is it? Let's make sure that we give it our all in this study and that we truly stand and live our life in the shadow of the cross, new and improved. How many times have you seen that as you walk up and down the grocery store aisle? Has it ever struck you? How could something be recreated so many times? Could it really be new and improved every time those in marketing say that it's new and improved? The answer is no, it can't be. As a matter of fact, it's been proven. Recently, it was discovered that when a toothpaste advertised that it was new and improved, the only thing that had changed about that toothpaste was the packaging of it. And on that label, they placed, they placed on it new and improved. Now, I could understand if you and I were watching the nightly news one night and there was this huge discovery that, that a substance had been discovered that could protect your, your teeth for a lifetime and it would whiten them bleach white in, in one brushing. Now, I can understand then if we walked down the grocery aisle and every one of the toothpaste said new and improved. But there haven't been great discoveries like that. If you think about it, since most of us have been alive, toothpaste has been pretty much toothpaste. But yet it's always been marketed as new and improved. What's the point? Perhaps we've gotten so accustomed to this marketing scheme that things ought to be new and improved that when in reality something should be new and improved, maybe we don't see the significance, the reality of all the changes that ought to take place in our life for them truly to be new and improved. You know, especially for the last 15 to 20 years, there's been a lot of talk in the religious circles about how things ought to be changed in the church. And that if churches are ever going to reach the world, that churches are going to have to be new and improved. I read an article this week of, of, of quoting an individual that spoke about some changes that ought to be made. Peter Drucker says this, All institutions, including governments, churches universities and so on will become more interdependent, more market and customer driven in the future. 
Friends, that leads us to an important question. Can the church become new and improved by taking itself out into the world and saying, we want to change to be like what you want? Can we be customer-driven? Now, obviously, there are some methods and traditions that need to change with every generation of people. But if the mindset is we need to change some doctrine that the world will like, we have a problem with that new and improved. On the other hand, I heard a gentleman this week state, and you and I would not agree probably with everything that he believes and practices doctrinally, but yet he has a conservative mindset, and he preaches at a congregation of six to 8,000 people. And when asked about how they had that kind of growth over the last few years, he said, don't worry about fulfilling everybody's needs. Preach the gospel and let the faithful remain. Let that sink in. Preach the gospel and let the faithful remain. Well, what about the people that don't want just the gospel? Shouldn't we make it new and improved for them so that we can make it the way they want it? Where do we find that in the gospel? Where do we find anywhere in the scriptures that the church needs to change to be like the world? Instead, what we read over and over in the scriptures is that the world, if they want to be a part of the Lord, they have to change. You and I have to change if we're going to be in Christ. Look at this text again that's been so capably read for us. Look especially at verse 17. We're in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. Therefore... We have a big if here because not everyone in the world will want to make this move. But if they did, verse 17, therefore if anyone, it's open to all, the invitation of the Lord, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now to further explain that new creation, in other words, this person is new and improved. As a matter of fact, so much has changed in their life. Notice the rest of this verse. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If any man is in Christ. What are we striving for? We're striving for that new creation. Where's that new creation found? That new creation is found in no other place than in Jesus Christ. We sometimes struggle to believe that. Someone says, I don't, David. I some, several, most, sometime in their life struggle to believe that. You don't know how many times I've heard this statement. You don't understand. The family that I grew up in was so dysfunctional. It's hard for me to ever live a Christian life. I can't really live the way God designed me to live because of my mama and my daddy. Oh, so you believe that a new creation is found in your physical family. Preacher, you don't understand. If, if I would have chosen a different spouse, and, and I regret that I didn't, but if I would have chosen a different spouse, I could be close to God. I could be that new creation. But because of the spouse that I have, they pull me down too much. It's impossible for me to be that new creation. Oh, so really the new creation is not found in living a life in Christ. The new creation is found in having the right marriage. 
Oh, you don't understand. I grew up in a church that was so tiny. There really weren't uh, people there and things there that could fulfill my needs. Or you don't understand. I grew up in a mega church and it was so big, we just got lost in the crowd. And there wasn't anybody there that could help. Oh, so you believe that the new creature is found in the size of the church you grow up in. Friends, isn't it amazing that Jesus doesn't have to give any descriptions, explanations, apologies? It's this simple. If you want to be a new creature, get in Christ. There's no other place. There's no other way. The new life is found in Christ. What does that mean for preachers? We've got to preach Christ. What does that mean for our Bible class teachers? We've got to teach Christ. What does that mean for our families? Every day we have to exalt Christ in our homes. What does that mean for our deacons that are leading an array of ministries? If those ministries ever lose sight of Christ... We have convinced ourselves that there's another way to be a new creation. That there's another way to live anew and improved. There's not. That new and improved is only in Christ. Here are several pages of scriptures. There's four full pages of scriptures on this sheet. It's all of the scriptures that has the exact phrase in the New Testament, in Christ, almost a hundred. This morning, if you claim to be a Christian and you do not know the significance of the phrase, in Christ, I beg you to study it. I beg you to take the time to look through the scriptures and to see how significant that is because everything hinges upon the fact of our salvation being found in Christ. I'd like for us to turn more quickly than usual to several scriptures, just four or five, for us to see the teachings of what is in Christ. As you're turning to Ephesians, the first chapter, in other words, think about this. If if in Christ is where everything is found, what is it that's everything? Well, let's look at some reasons why I ought to want to be in Christ. Ephesians 1 and 3, of course, the beginning of the book of Ephesians, Paul says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, where are those spiritual blessings found? In Christ. How many blessings are found? Every spiritual blessing. How many spiritual blessings can we have if we live out in the world? I'm not ready to make that commitment to live in Christ. I want to live out in the world, but I still want some spiritual blessings. There are none. All spiritual blessings. Every spiritual blessing. Where is it found? In Christ. A new creation. Look, if you will, to Colossians, the first chapter. Colossians, the first chapter, beginning back at verse 9 and 10, we see that he is offering a prayer on their behalf. And in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, we read this. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Now note that the Son of His love, of course, is talking about Jesus Christ. That is in reference here in 14, in whom? In whom? The Son of His love, Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption. 
Forgiveness of sins. Where is it found? In Christ. What if we stay out in the world? There is no redemption in the world. There is no forgiveness of sins. Turn to 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, the second chapter in verse 10, for a few verses he talked about the persecution and the suffering that he and others would have to do in order to be Christians, in order to live the life in Christ. It's not promised that it's easy. But notice what he says here as we read verse 10. Therefore, he's been talking about that suffering. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ with eternal glory. Where is that salvation found? Be turning, if you will, to 1 John, the 5th chapter. 1 John, the 5th chapter. That salvation was found in Christ. No other place. When we look in 1 John, the 5th chapter, in verse 11, notice as we see here, and this is a testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in Christ. Back up just a couple of pages to 1 Peter, the 5th chapter. The verse we just left in John, we see that that salvation or that eternal life that's called there is found only in Christ Jesus. I love this in 1 Peter 5 and 14. Now, this is the way 1 Peter closes. This is the last verse in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 5 and 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, notice this last sentence. Peace to you all. Well, now, there's an exception. There's a few that this peace isn't granted to. No, peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. If you've ever had a life that didn't know peace, you know how precious peace is. Who can have peace? In the midst of a world that's in turmoil, living in a body that's going to have disease and disappointments and losses, where could we ever find peace? Everybody that lives their life in Christ can know that peace. Friends, that's just a few of the passages that tell us of what we find when we decide to live our life in Christ. But how do we do it? It's interesting to note that Kaufman, Burton Kaufman, that wrote a series of commentaries through the Bible, about this particular verse, he says that he studied 57 commentaries and not one of them gave any reference to how to get into Christ. Can you imagine that? Why is it that so oftentimes, even as religious people, we've taken the emphasis off of Christ? And we've taken the emphasis off of our responsibility of what we need to do to get into Christ. Now friends, this isn't to take anything away from what Christ has done for us. Christ has given His life upon the cross, and that we call grace. And what a wonderful, wonderful gift that is. And for the, the next quarter, we'll study about that cross and about that grace. But we have to respond to that. On this next slide, I want you to notice as if there were different steps that would lead us into Christ. Matthew 7 and 24 tells us that we have to hear. And Jesus tells us that if we'll hear His sayings and do them, He will liken us unto a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. Where are you building your life? Do you hear the gospel and obey it? Do you believe it? John 8 and 24, Jesus said, 
that we would die in our sins if we believe not that I am He, you will die in your sins. We have to be willing to repent. I tell you nay, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Luke 13 and 3. We have to be willing to confess before man that Jesus is the Son of God or He won't confess us before the Father which is in heaven. Matthew the 10th chapter and verse 32. And then a final step that places us into Christ. It's not more important than the other steps. Every step is important, but we have to take that final step to move from the world and into Christ. Notice this next slide as we look at Galatians, the third chapter and 27. Notice how it teaches that we are baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Friends, there's nowhere in the Scriptures that speaks of any other way to get into Christ. You won't read about hearing into Christ, believing into Christ. Nowhere in the Scriptures will you read of repenting into Christ, confessing into Christ. Nowhere in the Scriptures will you read about praying into Christ or, or inviting Jesus into your heart to get into Christ. But yet here and also in Romans, the sixth chapter, we read, about being baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Why is it that the plan of salvation is so important? Because it's salvation. I can't move from the world into Christ without responding without submitting to what the Lord has asked us to do. I hope you have your Bibles open. Look back to 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter. In 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, I'd like to remind you of what verse 17 said there again. Notice in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, he said, Therefore. Now, you remember that therefore always links what has been previously said to what is being said. And so he says, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This passage in 17 is all about individuals that are in Christ that have become new. And they've taken old things and they put them behind them and they've taken new things and they use them completely different now. What are some of the things? Well, let's drop back and let's scan some verses. Look at the first four verses, and we see one thing that is new. In other words, these are things that Paul views differently because now he is a new creation. One thing in verse 1 through 4 is his home, and the home is talking about this body. Look at verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Let's pause there for a moment. What's he talking about when he's talking about this tent? He's talking about a temporary dwelling place that you and I call the body. You know, we have many here that enjoy camping. And, and maybe you even have some kind of RV, or maybe you camp in a tent. Now, as enjoyable as that is, you could go down to the, to the area that Katrina struck, and you could ask them, how enjoyable is it to live in a little RV trailer for months? And they would tell you it doesn't make a very good permanent dwelling place. What's the Lord saying here? 
He says, you understand the idea. Every culture has temporary dwelling places like tents. Every culture has permanent dwelling places. And today we think of a strong, sturdy built house. And he says, let me tell you what this body is. It's just a tent. Let me tell you where this body dwells on earth, which is just a temporary home. Let me tell you what God wants to do. He wants to give us a new body that will be permanent, a body that will exist in heaven. As long as we are here, we're not at home, and we're going to have groanings. We're going to have things that simply do not go the way we'd like for them to go. But what can happen is that when we become a new creation, we realize that everything we have to endure to live for the Lord here is worth it because of the body that is to come. Notice how this unfolds in verse 2. For in this, talking about this tent, we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed. In other words, it's not that we just want to die, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. I want that that will never die. When a child of God passes away from this earth, they have not died. Their physical being, their soul, them, dwelling in that body has ceased. They have simply moved. Just like you think of, a, of an individual that sleeps in a tent tonight and they move from that tent to a, a comfortable and beautiful permanent dwelling place the next night, this life has ceased to exist. They have simply moved to a wonderful life. Paul, what are you saying about all this? He says, now things have become new. The way I used to look at life is old. That way is passed away. Now I look at life completely different. Notice the second thing as we look to verse 7. Notice the vision that he has now. Verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. There was a time in Paul's life where he walked seeing what he thought was best. That time he persecuted Christians. He said, I no longer walk by my sight. He says, now I walk by faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. In other words, I live now based solely upon what God wants me to do. Well, what if you can't see it and it doesn't make sense to you? That's when it's faith. I still do what God wants. There was a time when I saw my possessions as the way to live. Now I see my possessions through faith as a way to serve God. There was a time where I longed for, for a, a powerful personality or for prestige or for popularity. Now I see the way God has created me and a way to live to magnify Him. It's by faith, not by sight. Notice the third thing that has become new. Notice the aim in his life in verse 10. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. He says, I make it my aim. You know, in archery, you can imagine an individual pulling back the bow. And you see the target, and they're carefully aiming at the target. What's your aim? You could ask Paul in detail, and I'm certain he would say, if at one point I was aiming in this direction, 
that old life is done away with. Now I'm completely, entirely aiming in another direction. At this point in my life, I was against the Lord. At this point in my life, I'm aiming toward the Lord. When you go to work or school tomorrow, do you realize that almost everyone around you, if you're the average person, almost everyone around you will be aiming in an entirely different direction than what you as a Christian are aiming? You see, they're not in Christ. So old things are still their life. They've never made that change new and improved. It's not some little mild change of the packaging. I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take that physical body and and we're going to get that physical body wet and and everybody's going to see that it's wet and then you just go out and still live the same life. No. No, old things have passed away. You have completely changed what you're aiming toward. Well, what's one of the things he's aiming toward? Look at the very next verse in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul says, I'm aiming for that day of judgment. I'm aiming for the time that I can stand before the Lord on the day of judgment. Christians don't have to fear the day of judgment. They can approach it with boldness, the Hebrew writer tells us. That's new. Old things of being fearful, of aiming the wrong direction, they've passed away. But notice a motive in verse 11 for the care of others. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your conscience. Paul, why do you go out and give your life trying to reach others? He says, let me tell you about this new life. This new life, I realize that there is a day of judgment, and I realize that the terror of the Lord is that He will tell those to depart from Him that have never lived their life in Christ. I don't want people to go through that. I do my best to warn them so that they can avoid that. Friends, I believe with all of my heart that until you and I picture in our mind Judgment Day and we see our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, and our family members that are not in Christ, and in our mind we see them hearing depart from me, and we see them passing through the gates of hell, until we recognize the terror of the Lord, we will not be motivated to help them see the Savior our Lord. That's what Paul's referring to. New creation, the new creatures, they see that. And finally this morning, look down at verse 16. Therefore, from now on, you see the now on, he's talking about before I was old, now I'm new. So from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him thus no longer. Paul's literally saying here, before I became a Christian, I viewed people from a fleshly aspect. Now I don't. You know when Jesus went up to the Samaritan woman? Jewish men of His day would not have done that because she would have been a lesser class to them. But you see, to Jesus, that wasn't the case. He loved and respected everyone. He saw that individual as a soul. He didn't regard her by the flesh. 
when the adulterous woman was about to be stoned, he saw through perhaps deception and he saw the worth. When Levi, the tax collector, would not have been accepted by most religious people of his day, he didn't regard him according to the flesh. Friends, you and I dismiss and we discard and we simply do not deal righteously with others whenever we see them according to the flesh instead of seeing them spiritually. And what a mistake we make. Paul even refers to the fact in the last half of that verse, notice there's two sentences in that verse. The last half of the verse, he refers to the fact that he no longer views Jesus the same way. Do you remember when Jesus was being preached by Stephen and the people got so mad because he preached Jesus and he preached that they had crucified him, that they drug him out, gnashing at him with their teeth, and they began to strip off their outer coats and they threw the coats upon Paul. Can you imagine what must have been going through Paul's mind as he makes this statement? There was a time that I regarded Jesus Christ as a flesh, but I no longer do. Can you imagine him thinking about, I remember the time I held the coats and one of his great men, Stephen, was stoned to death because I looked at Jesus as a fleshly man that was blaspheming and I wanted his followers to be put to death. He was the one that led the persecution of the early church for some time, but yet he no longer views them according to the flesh. A German philosopher says, I would believe, speaking about Christians, I would believe in their salvation if they looked a little more like the people who have been saved. An interesting observation from an outsider. In other words, he's saying, They call themselves Christians, but they just don't look new. Friends, how new are you? Are you truly different because you're a child of God? Or have you just tried to change some things about the packaging to fool yourself and to fool others? We rob ourselves of tremendous blessings whenever we don't really change our life. This morning, let's give careful consideration to who we are and who we belong to. And let's make sure that we're in Christ. We've studied the plan of salvation that leads us from the world to Christ. If somewhere along the way you've left Christ, The way back, James 5 and 16 teaches us is to confess our sins one to another and pray one for another. If you're ready to repent and come back home, we'd love to have the opportunity to pray with you. If you want to be baptized to get into Christ, we're not perfect. No one here is perfect. But we all ought to have a standard as to become totally new. Anything in between is a miserable lukewarmness. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.